Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at OnStrategy1. That's the number one, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Today, we talk with Lachlan Williams. Lachlan is the uh, former head of strategy at RGA London, and we're going to be talking today about Siemens. Now, Siemens is a conglomerate, uh, German headquartered, has worked in the industrial sector for many, many, uh, many, many, many years and has been sort of evolving its business to have some somewhat more of a kind of a professional services component than been able to work on massive infrastructure issues in uh, in various sectors and um, while we are talking about an industrial company here you could immediately assume that this is a b2b assignment but it really at its at its essence is not it's really about employee branding and building an internal brand in order for that brand to then uh, be reflected externally uh, for whatever business purpose that purpose that may be used for. In this case, it's for recruiting of, of talent. Uh, Siemens needed to recruit talent from a lot of different sectors, a very different way of recruiting versus the way they had done it in the past. Instead of looking for people who, um, who are maybe in, uh, in, in the more industrial manufacturing realm, this is about people who are more in technology and professional services realm. So it's sort of a, uh, competing more with a Google and a Facebook than it might have been in the past in dealing with engineers from, you know, General Electric, for example. So it, it's a great example. Uh, and I think, you know, Lachlan is a very smart guy. We get into some terrific detail here, not only about the strategy and the category, but also ultimately about how they uh, executed this from a technology platform perspective. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a terrific, it's a terrific uh, assignment to hear about. So that said, this is Lachlan Williams, former head of strategy at RGA London. Enjoy. I understand that you are in Cambridge, England, this idyllic town. I am. I'm I'm five minutes in every direction from a cow, a meadow, a river, or a building that looks like you're somewhere in Hogwarts. Um, It is is quite lovely. (laughs) It is lovely. You know, it's amazing to be, it's amazing to even have access to that. I grew up in Dublin and we could, we could take a 10 minute car ride and, and be in, uh, be in these beautiful lush mountains and farms and, and walls that were made of stone. So big, big old chunks of rocks. So it's, uh, I know the value of it. We miss it here in Chicago where everywhere you go in five minutes, you're in the same place. (laughs) Nothing changes. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is certainly a lovely place to be, and great to have great to have kids here. Really, really nice. Yeah. So um, you and I are going to have uh, what I just realized uh, this morning is that this is the first um, showcase on a B two B assignment. So I'm actually really excited to have that be a reality, and and I mean that because uh, I have a B two B. Typically, you know, it's not it's not celebrated as been the sexiest of assignments. The most uh, the, the most uh, sort of desirable things to work on. But the reality of working on these things, and I know this from experience, is that some of the most exciting things, the most engaging things, the most innovative things happen in B2B. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I, I've spent a lot of time, um, whenever anyone says B2B, kind of just reminding them that it's actually still business to people but it's business to people in a business context. So right. the, way that, the way that I would tend to approach anything B2B is that you know, we're still talking to human beings. They still have emotions. They've still got needs. Um, it's just the context they're in is slightly different. So I, I, I wouldn't approach it really any differently. And I think that's, 
probably a really big part of kind of why I think this case study is so interesting is that it wasn't a B2B case study. It was very much a kind of a, a, a people-centric case study. It just happened to happen in the middle of a huge German engineering company. Yeah, and it's interesting because the, the conventional wisdom is that that we wear different hats in, in different roles in our lives. So when we're a business buyer, we are kind of processing information very differently than if we're than if we're we're buying something for our own life for our for our yeah. so we, we kind of separate them and and you know I get some of that I get that there are there are different perceived risks there's different sense of accountability for decisions there's a responsibility to something other than self but fundamentally um, may, while the message may be different the tone and and the conceptual context of everything doesn't necessarily have to be is that fair to say yeah I mean. I, I think a lot of it has to do with with kind of stretch and context, right? So um, one one of the biggest challenges that we we face doing doing this project is the fact that um, some of Siemens' customers are governments. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking you know, billion dollar um, deals to kind of transform energy solutions in in, in the Middle East, um, and that you need to take that very seriously. That is a very serious contract, right, with a lot of very important people and you know entire countries' livelihood on on the on, on the line. So there's no you can't be flippant about that. And at the same time, inside of that company, the people who are doing this project work want to feel like they're part of a place where their entire self is kind of valued and respected, where they want to kind of actually do enjoy themselves. And and you can't possibly take yourselves that seriously all of the time. So there's this tension between the context that you're in and what it takes to do great work. Um, and I think that was, you know, a, a big part of this was kind of reminding people at Siemens that the value of people and the kind of texture and nuance of those individuals, their, their, their very humanity was critical to kind of doing this sort of transformation work. Um, it, even if it was, you know, really desperately serious stuff that can transform the entire tra- trajectory of a, of, 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 of a nation. So uh, tell me about how you think about the culture of Siemens. And I, when we talked, uh, we talked last week and kind of scheduling this, and I loved, because uh, we were talking about comparing Siemens um, uh, to like General Electric in its heyday, mm-hmm. where these just these massive conglomerates, uh, at GE being more of American-based, cult- culturally American-based, and in reality American-based, Siemens being German uh, in, in its headquarters. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious. How do you how do you think about them, or how do you what are your observations on them culturally? How they're distinct? Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's kind of two really big parts of this. I think that the first is uh, recognizing that Siemens is 380,000 people around the world, um, and to kind of say, well, what's the general culture of a place like that? Um, is it's a little like asking, and what's the general culture of a country? Right? There are it's it's bigger than some some countries. Um, so, so there's a part of that that I think is recognizing that there are many cultures inside of Siemens. Um, the second part of it is fairly obviously that if its core is a big German engineering company, it's been around for a really long time. There are some you know, deep, deeply rooted kind of beliefs and behaviors and, and values that sit inside of that. And so, when when we kind of started this project and we looked at, um, you know. GE is very, very good at promoting itself, and it is part of that kind of American business culture where they're very—they're really good at that. They're great at marketing, um, and they're a fantastic company, and they tell their stories brilliantly, and, and they kind of always, always, always have been really good at that. Um, and Siemens um, tended to just kind of get on with it. Um, that they felt uncomfortable promoting themselves. Um, there was a humility 
um, that could sometimes come across in a different way, but really it came down to that they, I mean, when we first started working on this, one of our clients said to us, um, GE will happily complete something to about 50, 60% and then talk about it to the, to the world. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Siemens would rather get to 120% finished and then they might consider talking about it, but they'll do it. They'll, they'll do it. They'll do it in a really matter of fact way. Like, yes, we, we, we simply did this and expect that the, the demonstration of the work that they'd done would be enough for everyone else to be very impressed. And, and the reality is in, in the, you know, in the marketing and brand world, you, you need to be able to promote. And so there's this constant tension inside of the Siemens culture between, um, being committed to doing the work and allowing the work to speak for itself and the humility that comes with doing that, that, that sort of work, but also the, the need to promote the company to attract the sort of talent that can change where, where, where the company wants to go. Um, and it was that, that tension that, that kind of was really interesting to me because you, you can't ignore that. You, you simply can't turn a company like that into a promotion engine. Um, you need to respect that that's actually a really valuable part of their culture. But if you want to be able to get them to promote themselves and to, appear externally to kind of the sort of talent that they needed, um, something had to change. So tell us, just for those who aren't familiar with Siemens, uh, tell us uh, about sort of the scope of that business, what, what <laughs> yeah. areas they're in. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, when when we started, started working on this, in fact, the first couple of months when we were scaling this project up at an incredibly rapid rate, um, the very first thing that I would say to anybody starting was, no, they don't make washing machines or telephones. Um, the fact is they, they kind of, those parts of the business kind of got sold many, many years ago, uh, and they're licensed. Well, so you, know, you can walk into a kitchen, you can still see Siemens products. Ultimately that's, those products are kind of, um, made and distributed by other companies. What Siemens is now, um, is a, a kind of a global, um, energy digital, um, transformation company you know they, they they have industries that range from you know mindsphere which is their kind of tech technology arm they do building technologies financing energy healthcare industrial automation mobility um software um as well as them consumer products and they've i mean it, it, even in the last couple of years they've they've kind of changed their business again they, they sort of split it into a few different business units but when when we first started the the three kind of pillars were um, electrification, automation, and digitalization. And that kind of, those three themes kind of traveled across their entire business. But where we're not talking about washing machines, we're talking about energy solutions for entire countries, right? And transportation solutions. Nice. And then like who are they, who are they competing against globally? Well, in terms of talent, uh, which, which is what this is really about, they're competing with everybody. Um, but in particular, because of where the business needs to go in terms of digitalization, um, they're up against all the big tech companies. Um, all the best technology talent in each country are, are going to fairly predictable places. Um, and that means, you know, they're, they're up against the Facebooks and the Apples and the, and the, and the Googles of, of, of the world, as, as well as being up against their kind of more traditional engineering uh, counterparts. Because the entire engineering industry is moving to those places, they're, for the first time, they're competing with talent that they're not used to competing for. And, and that that kind of was a, a, one of the biggest parts of this challenge is that they, they kind of were able to continue attracting that engineering talent, um, doing the things they were doing, because if you're an engineer, you know, Siemens, right. Uh, but if you are into technology and cybersecurity and, and, and data infrastructure and things like that, it may not be the, the most obvious choice. Um, and for Siemens to succeed in the future, they needed to be um, higher on the list of places that that talent wanted to go. 
So was it, it, was it still, was it a company that sort of evolved in the way IBM has in terms of moving from, you know, moving into professional services as a big part of their business? And, and obviously then you're relying on talent? Yeah, I mean, look, they, they, it has that theme, absolutely. Um, the, the whole sort of automation part of the business um, and sort of energy, the, the, the shift to kind of different energy, energy solutions has seen huge transformation in, in, their, in their, the kind of skill spaces and the people that they actually need. But um, like many companies their size, some of those were things they invented, some of those things were things they acquired. Um, and, you know, a company this size has got lots of cultures inside of it just because those acquisitions brought in whole groups of people that didn't grow up in that kind of dominant Siemens culture. And now you've got this kind of blend of things. So, um, yeah, that, that they've grown in all of the different ways. Um, but a big part of it right now is understanding that the, uh, the mindset and the skill set of the people they have in there um, needs to become more digital so that they can accelerate to the future that they need in all of the industries that they're operating in. So what was, uh, tell us when, take us back to the start of this whole relationship. So, yeah. so are, are, there's a meeting, there's a meeting at some point, it, it, was it, is it in RGA London or is it in some other office? And tell us what, 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 tell us about that meeting. Yeah. So, um, th- this came through as a pitch. Um, we had our, uh, a, a note come into our inbox, our, our, our kind of head of, head of growth, um, saying, would you like to pitch for the Siemens employer brand? Um, and we had a little look at it. Um, I thought the brief was really fascinating because I've always had this kind of belief that your employees are a really fundamental part of your brand. Um, and the people, you know, if we, we know that people are the, the greatest asset that any company can have, then um, the type of people that, you, that you're attracting um, and what they believe in the company is, is absolutely critical to the future success. Uh, and so I, I kind of, I, I saw that and was really quite excited by it. We, we kind of put together a little response and Part of the kind of part of the clue, I think, for why this was so interesting is that they invited us. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just going to ask em, that. Yeah, yeah. It, in, employer brand briefs, you know, tend to go to employer brand specialist companies, and there's a there's a whole bunch of companies out there that specialize in employer brand, and they're all really, really good. Um, but like many companies that sort of specialize in a in a particular field, there's a playbook for employer brand. Um, and, yeah, and and, and and many companies. Um, not just the, the agencies that kind of do this this work. I think undervalue employer brand. It, it for some companies it's you know it's a t-shirt and a coffee mug, right? And and Siemens had understood um, by inviting a company like us to to pitch for this that it was bigger than that. Um, in fact, the this the central kind of belief that that I think probably drove this brief um, really was was an understanding that you should be treating your employees like you do your best customers. Um, because if if you, you bit for your business to succeed, you know, you need those people to be on board and driving to the same same objective. So you should be treating them with the same respect and the same value that you that you would your best customers. And so, if you want to build a strategy to do that, you should employ a company who knows how to do that at the the top of their game with you know real with customers, not just employees, um, rather than going to a specialist company. I think that's that's why why it was so interesting to us. And, and a good sign that they'd invited us in the first place that they were already thinking about that. Because I think with, with, with RGA, um, there is this sort of consulting arm of, of RGA that's probably it is a more of a professional services uh, offering that sort of complements the solutions and ideation part of RGA, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when this brief came in, the, uh, the head of uh, business transformation, RGA was a man called Andrew Lampetang 
who I love, absolutely love. And Andrew and I have formed a little strategy partnership, um, romance, if you will. <laughs> and, and Andrew's ex-BCG. And so he's a, he's a proper grown-up consultant, um, re- really deeply rooted in digital transformation strategies. He's done that for, done that for a few companies. And uh, what, we, what we were as a, as a team was a, a bunch of different skills that allowed us to think about this from a, a, a people-first perspective, but in the context of the business and to make sure that we had stakeholder alignment, that we had organizational design and change baked into it. Um, and also that we had visibility at the, at the right levels to, to pitch the strategy to, to the right people. And I think without Andrew working with me on, on, the, on this project to push this strategy, it would have, it would look very different. Um, and similarly, if it had been as just a straight consulting job. So for, for me, it's a, it was a perfect demonstration of what happens when you get those different skill sets together to have that thinking pitched at the right level with an understanding of what the business re- requires to make sure that that thinking can can, can be bought ultimately and that you have the confidence in that business to actually buy it. So then, uh, so just for those who don't know, BCG is Boston Consulting Group, which is sort of in the same uh, sphere as um, as McKinsey, their McKinsey-esque uh, sort of business consulting group. So, you know, what's interesting to me is that a, a lot of planners um, wouldn't know how to approach this or would struggle with how to approach, approach this or more important, wouldn't have the passion for this. Are you wired a little differently than most what we think of as planners today um i i hope so i hope so um my my wife would definitely say that i'm wired a little differently but she may not be being very kind (laughs) um i i think what most most planners would see is is a problem to solve um and uh i i have worked with an incredibly diverse range of different thinkers and and the, the thing that always impresses me is that different experiences and skills and toolkits applied to different problems always gets you interesting results. And I'm confident that um, any one of my colleagues that, that um, had worked on this, and in fact, most of my colleagues did end up working on this in some capacity, um, use the toolkits they have to solve what's in front of them. And we all would have come up with different solutions and gotten to different places, more or less around the same themes. I, I think we all, we got to a very, very sort of shared shared perspective on what we wanted to try and accomplish, but how we got there, the tools we used to then explore and, and expand on, on the solutions really come down to the toolkit that you have. So I, I, I used to get asked a lot from, from my team, you know, what sort of planner am I? And I'm like, oh, does it matter? Like, tell me what, what tools you have. What, what tools do you use to, to think strategically? That's more important because if you can cultivate those skills and those tools, you can solve any problem, but you'll solve it in your way. And I think that's what's, what I really enjoyed with my time working at IG was just that you didn't really ever have to explain what it was called that you were doing. It just had to be good. Right. And, and certainly from a strategic point of view, that's, that's, that's the, that's the dream. Solve problems in whatever way you see fit and, and, and know and appreciate the, the toolkits that you have and where your gaps might be and, and plug those gaps with people around you to, to get to different places. So the client, the client, uh, ultimately it results in a meeting, um, what is the, what, how does the client articulate the problem they have, they feel they have? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's worth, worth a little call out to um, the two main clients we had, uh, a wonderful lady called Rosa Riera and a wonderful man called Chris Knorn. Um, they already had, a, had done an enormous amount of work, I think, in understanding how to articulate their problem, um, understanding the sort of partner that they needed to, to do this work. 
and so they they came in with a with a really strong brief. You know, they said this is what people see us as outside of the company, and they had these wonderful little uh, illustrations, which I think you can you can see in um, one of Rose's talks. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, at a company. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that they, they did this little visual thing, like what does Siemens look like as as, as a person? Um, and you know, Siemens looks like an old German engineering man, right? And uh, in order to attract that young technology talent that they needed so desperately, they needed to change that image a little bit. So that they had a very, very clear sense of what they wanted to try and get to. Um, and I think they, they probably had a very clear sense of how they felt we might get there. Um, but certainly the, the, the brief, the original brief was something along the lines of how do we, you know, change the perception of Siemens as an employer. And what we got to quite quickly, um, and it certainly wasn't a difficult sell to kind of explain that we thought this was the right thing to do is that you can't really do that unless your people that already work for you believe it as well. Um, so this quickly turned from an external perception into an internal engagement brief um, so that we could then fuel a much more more potent strategy externally to change those perceptions. Um, so then you, 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 begin to, you begin to then undertake some planning tasks to talk us through you know, what you guys did in order to prep for your pitch presentation. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the pitch presentation was fairly, fairly straightforward. I guess we, we followed our reasonably standard kind of strategic process of going and finding out everything we could about the category, the culture, the people, um, their, their business and, and, and their brand to just understand the context of the problem. Um, I, I think we, we probably presented a, a reframe in the sense that we felt that it was just as important to look inside the company as it was to look outside the company for, for perception because that's where the truth ultimately comes from. Um, we had already, I think, established at the beginning uh, an, an editorial-ish approach to how to, how to, do, this, the, the, uh, to, to do this work. Um, and a big part of that was understanding that we need to do much more research. Like, this was something that we had to understand in a very deep way. Um, what we didn't know at the pitch stage is that there was an enormous amount of data that was waiting for us. Um, Siemens had an incredibly rich um, stream of data for both external talent, but also their own employees. Um, and that, those two data sets became our kind of North Star because actually maybe not North Star. I'd say that, that they, beca- they became the kind of the engine really of, of how we knew what we needed to do, but also knew how we would know if we were succeeding. Um, and what was very, very apparent in, in that data set, from, certainly from a, a kind of macro point of view, is that there was a huge gap in the perception and a huge misalignment inside the business in the sense that people had very different points of view of what the company was. They were all reasonably engaged, but there wasn't a consistent story to tell. And externally, it kind of showed, right? Was that, so, was that something that you noticed was, was uh, that you could, that, that these sort of different attitudes and perceptions were, were things that you could group into people who were, were younger, people who had, a, who had different skill sets, people who were in different geographies? I mean, how were they... How were they different? Was there a theme or something noticeable about why they were that way? Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I mean, th- th- there were some kind of general trends around um, very, very senior um, people with very long tenures um, were very engaged as were kind of the new recruits. And there's this, um, the people in, in the middle were, were maybe slightly less engaged, which is a very, very standard shape of any sort of 
organizational uh, engagement. But then you had very, very different views on um, different markets where there were different industries um, within different types of roles. And you know, the Siemens, as I said, was is three hundred eighty thousand people, and their engagement survey had two hundred seventy thousand respondents, which is a yeah. which is pretty pretty punchy, right? And it was split by tenure, by job function, by country. So you can get down to incredibly granular levels, and every time you zoomed into a, a a group, you got you got a sense of what was what was going on there, and, and it wasn't. I don't think there was there was a, enough of a total shape for everything that we could say. Well, there's a single solution to this. It was there is a framework through which to solve this, and we need to be able to zoom into those different groups across those different regions um, and find out what the key drivers for career success are for these people, and make sure that we have a, a strategy which allows us to to speak directly to that. Were you able um, to do any primary work yourselves with internal stakeholders? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. So our our first. I'd say our first kind of week uh, working on this project, our wonderful clients introduced us to about 30 to 40 people. Um, and we spent a good couple of days in Munich. Uh, we spent a ton of time on the phone and we just met everybody. Um, and it was, it was really amazing because they'd thought through very, very carefully at the very beginning who we would need to be able to work with. Um, they understood, I, I think, very early on that this was going to be a, we were going to be connective tissue in, in a business that had found it hard to kind of bring all these things together. Um, this project was going to be about alignment as much as, as much as it was a, a strategic solution. And so those first, first kind of days of speaking to major sta- stakeholders, um, then coupled with speaking to um, employees and external talent really gave us the, the kind of rich texture that, that followed the shape of the data. Um, I, I think it's really important to, to always, always have that, that kind of ability to to add real voices and kind of real texture to 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 that to that that data shape. If you just if you just follow the data, you, you might be missing some interesting stuff. And you know, we the insight that we arrived at reasonably early came from a conversation uh, where someone said, "Well, you know, I, I I checked the website for what the company is like, but if I really want to know what it's like, I just give someone a call that works there." And you go, "Yep, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, of course, right. of course, you do that." Like, and 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 the the kind of aha moment for us was. If, you, if that person gives that, that, that kind of employee a call and says, hey, I saw this amazing thing about this company, is it true? And the person on the other end of the phone says, not really, or I don't know what you're talking about, then it was all a total waste of time. So, so you really need those people inside the company to share that story, to be able to speak with passion and to actually you know, share with one another first before they can, they can kind of speak externally. And that... You know, you get a phrasing like that from someone that you speak to and it all makes sense all of a sudden. The context through which you look at that, that there's a larger data set start to make much more sense and you get a real feeling for, for how you need to progress. That, I mean, that's a great, great point. And, and I think that I've experienced the exact same thing so many times uh, where, you're, where you, the actual insight just comes from a moment, something someone says. And I, and I bring that up only because when you've got large organizations or you've or, or in fact it could be any organization that's that's targeting a large a large audience the the uh, the tendency is to is when you get into research and doing primary work is to never know you just never know where to stop 
because, you know, some people just, you may have a client who feels that, well, we don't have this audience represented or we need to make sure we have people from uh, the market in India included in this. And you just end, you can, if you're not careful and if you don't frame it right, you can end up just going down a rabbit hole, endlessly segmenting, endlessly talking to people. So my, my question is, do you guys, when you guys approach this, do you, are you looking for, for sampling and representation of valid audiences? Or are you just going down until you find that insight that seems to connect all of the dots? How do you approach it? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say that it, it's kind of a mix of those things. I mean, like the, one of the things that was very hard, I think, for people at the very beginning working on this project to understand is that there were up to 48 projects running at any one time. And every single one of them was a contained brief that was connected to a larger whole. And so uh, there's an insight and a group of insights or understandings that drives the larger piece. And then there's nuanced understandings and insights that need to drive the specific areas. And each of those each of those projects required something different, you know. So, for, for example, one of the at one end of the spectrum, we had uh, work with Siemens Management Consultants, um, which is which was amazing because you know you're dealing with a bunch of ridiculously smart people who do strategy for a living, and you're trying to convince them of the strategy. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. "Well, yes, that's that's an interesting point." And they give you something like, "That's incredible!" And oh my god, my brain. And at the other end of the spectrum, we were, we were speaking to um, kids who were doing internships, like the, the kind of the, the part the half working, half studying stuff. And the way that you speak to those groups, the way that you have a conversation with them ultimately about what it is that they're kind of into is fundamentally different. So the student one, uh, a, a very good colleague, friend of mine, um, a guy called Max Vilke, ran that entire project on his own on WhatsApp because that was the medium best to to best connect with, with with that group of people. And he used it as, as a medium to share inspiration, to get content back from them, as to ask them questions, to make them feel comfortable and to make them feel like a little community. So the, 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 the approach that we took to working with that group and, and researching that group and forming those insights was very much centered around what does that, how is that group most likely to share? And that's a very different approach than we have with, with obviously the management consultants or any of the other projects. So I, I think there was a lot of, asking the right questions and really listening um, and just seeing what the best way to find those, those answers were actually was, you know, we, we had a really good strategy squad as well that was sharing a lot of information together and, and, and operating as a really lovely team um, where they'd go and approach things in different ways and share the kind of the, the kind of outcomes of those and experiment with what was working and, and what wasn't. So there wasn't a there wasn't a kind of a, a single rigorous process. This is this is how we get to the answers. It was use your intellect and use your understanding of the context to um, apply the right tools to find interesting uh, insights and interesting observations that, that can get you to places. So when you when you talk to the internal stakeholders, and I'm talking about people that are working for the company, and you're talking to external, these are potential people you might might be the pool of people to recruit from what are you what are you trying to understand um given that given what your goal is what are you trying to understand from them what is it it obviously is not surface conversations it has to go deeper than that and and for employees and for those who work with employees there's always a significant level of discomfort 
for an employee to have somebody they don't know come in and sit with them or talk with them on the phone and, and their willingness to share things that are not uh, polished and all levels of positivity. You have to get below that. How do you, what were you looking to discover? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always looking for the why, you know, what's, what's behind this uh, to, to your point. Point, you know, if you ask a question, the answer you're going to get is is the tip of the iceberg, and then it's your job to to find the best way without interfering to uncover the rest of it. Right? It's a it's a really delicate process, like pe- peeling layers back. Right. And um, one of the things that really kind of surprised us, actually speaking to particularly um, talent internally, was that they were very happy to share, and they were super passionate. Right. And they <laughs> the the shape of most of those conversations went something along the lines of. Um, first few minutes was talking in an impassioned way about how they felt Siemens was incredible and they were super proud to work there. And it's just, and many of them had been there for, you know, several decades. Um, and then they spent the next 55 minutes telling us everything that was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's good. What is good. It's really good. Right. Because it, 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 you can listen to kind of what they're saying. And you can get a lot of information. We certainly did. But really kind of how they were saying it and why they were saying it was far more important because it came from a place of true passion. And, and, tr- and they really cared. They, they really wanted this thing to work. They really wanted you to understand everything they felt was um, in, in the way of getting to the places that they all kind of wanted to. And there was genuinely a shared passion. It, there might not have been a shared story, but there was certainly a shared passion. Um, and when you start to see that and you understand that, you, you understand that the... I just said understand a thousand times. Um, I understand. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you start to see all of that, you you start to understand what the solution needs to be. It's it's simply about harnessing that energy and and focusing it in the right ways and building that shared narrative. Because if there wasn't that passion there, we'd had a ve- we'd have had a very different challenge on our hands, right? But it was it was alive and well, right? There was a, it, it was almost unanimous. Everyone we spoke to had had that same kind of energy behind it, and so that, that made our the structure of our solution um, a much clearer job to do. What about um, external? Really, what about the external audience? Yeah, I mean, it depends on who we were speaking to. To be honest, like the when we spoke to some younger cohorts, some of them had never really thought of Siemens at all. It was like, yeah, then they just. Like I said before, like don't they just make washing machines and telephones? You're like, well, no. And and then the second you start talking to them about kind of what you know, we, we tried our best not to do the sales pitch, but like we wanted to be able to talk to them about the sorts of things that Siemens did that ultimately you know were the foundations of successful societies. And it's energy, it's transportation, like it's infrastructure. These are the things that underpin societies. They're not moving pixels around an app, right? These these are fundamental. And the second they understood that. Um, it became very clear that you know they wanted to do stuff that had that had an impact. Um, they just had never thought about Siemens as a company where, where they could where they could do that. So it was probably a little bit harder ex- with external people to get to the right the right nuggets. Um, but it was all there. Uh, and again, it's just it came down to kind of how how well we were able to listen and how much time we were able to spend listening because we could have spent the whole time just having those conversations and it would have been fascinating, but we wouldn't have got very far. So I, you know, uh, GE produced a spot a couple of years back called Hammer, right? Yeah. And Hammer is, uh, as as I listen to you talking about the external perceptions, 
it sort of uh, brings that to mind. So I'm going to I'm going to play that spot here and let uh, let the listeners hear it, and we'll put it in the episode page also. Proud of you, son. GE manufacturer. Well, that's why I dug this out for you. It's your grandpappy's hammer, and he would have wanted you to have it. It meant a lot to him. Yes, GE makes powerful machines, but I'll be writing the code that will allow those machines to share information with each other. I'll be changing the way the world... You can't pick it up, can you? Go ahead. I can't lift the hammer. It's okay, though. You're going to change the world. What What did you think of... That spot you're familiar with it, I understand. It's almost seems to be. It was a. It was a great. Uh, it seemed like a great spot that got at that 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 very issue of trying to understand how do you modernize a company that is seen as being one way and has the challenge of of uh, transforming itself perceptually to being another. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it is a lovely spot. As I said before, GE are master communicators, and they've been doing it for a long, long time. It's it's all really beautiful stuff. And that was a that was a that's a sort of a B to that's a B to B to C uh, spot. Yeah, but but this is this is kind of my point earlier, and I think GE understand that quite well. Is that it? It doesn't. This isn't B to B. This is this is just people, and 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 this is a beautiful kind of way using a you know very traditional kind of storytelling technique to kind of talk about why you should be proud to work at a company like this um, and what that fundamental shift needed to be. Um, what we tried to do that was maybe a little different was was rather than do a, a top-down communications approach we wanted to do it bottom up because it needed to change that culture not just have that kind of external message so before we turn the corner to talk about the strategic recommendations um i think i'd love to know uh, what you when you look at what you discovered the problem that needed to solve to needed to be solved was and you compared it to what the client brief was. Was there a distinction that you had to go back and say, we get what the objective is, we get what you think the challenge is, but ultimately in order to get to success, we have to, we have to fix this. Was there something that needed to be fixed? I have a feeling, um, and I'm sure uh, if I asked Rosa and Chris what, what they thought at the beginning, they already kind of knew that the challenge wasn't just an external one, it was an internal one, but, but they needed to kind of build the logic and the argument to get there. Our, our kind of reframe or challenge that we, you know, I wouldn't even say it was out necessarily our solution. I'm sure we got there together with, with Chris and Rosa is that um, if you want to change the perception of the company externally, you first need to have a, a single shared story to tell internally. Um, and our, our strategy, I'm going to kind of leap ahead just a little bit because it, it, yeah. it, it helps explain it. The, the strategy was to empower Siemens employees and enable Siemens employees to spark a global conversation about the future of engineering and, and what it took to get there. That was our editorial mission. You know? And that allowed us to kind of flex to the macro conversation about that, but also then zoom into very specific parts of, of that story. Um, and, and really importantly, the what it takes to get there bit allows you to look at all the different functions that add up to, to that 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 kind of um, point of view. Um, so it was a hugely flexible kind of framework for us for us to to to, uh, to work with. And one of the very first things that we heard sometimes when we presented this strategy to different stakeholders was, "Yes, but we don't have conversations in this company." And <laughs> I didn't believe that necessarily. I can see how um, it didn't necessarily have the same flow of communication and comfort through conversation that um, 
slightly younger companies might, might have just because of its legacy. Um, but a big part of the strategy was about how do we, how do we start a, a, a more um, dynamic culture of conversation inside of Siemens? Because the more that they talk to one another, the more that they share the story, the more that passion that we were hearing could be shared amongst amongst their employees, and they could start to see the the, the bigger picture of the company, not just their kind of department view. Um, so that that strategic framework was um, as much about the internal change that needed to happen and the internal job to, to build that, that single story as it was then later to fuel the external perception change from using those employees as ultimately the, the subject of the communications, but also the vehicle. So did you, did you have to build as RGA, did you have to build out infrastructure that would sort of allow these, these conversations to happen? Yeah. I mean, it, we, we really, built quite a lot of stuff in the end um i had a conversation with with one of my colleagues the other day who um helped me um build all this a, a wonderful lady called beth brown um she, she was the kind of the, the project lead i guess and uh her, her and i spent a lot of time together and i mean a lot over three years she she yeah a lot of time um and a, a big part of it was not just having the strategic solution but it was creating the conditions for that strategic solution to be accepted understood and socialized Excellent, it was never right. going to be yeah it was never going to be enough for us to kind of have the solution it had to be something that siemens could then own and adopt and and, and apply for themselves because the company is just too big for us to build a team to to stand over it and do it so it needed to be it needed to work and, and what one of the things that i found myself repeating rather a lot um, which probably annoyed some people at some point was everything we did, every document we, we we produced, every experience we designed, every communications, every toolkit. It didn't matter what it was; it had to be of the strategy, not just about the strategy. And 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 when, when I say what, that, what mean I mean that? is, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, if this was about having a conversation, and it was inspiring a culture of conversations out of Siemens, then all of our work needed to be conversational. It needed to be designed with an understanding of how conversations take place and what role we're we playing in that. So a really, really simple example, the first one that comes to mind is um, we put together a, a, a kind of a master presentation document that um, different people from Siemens could use if they were going to present um, on behalf of the company to say a student cohort. And the very first um, page of this document was thank you. Thank you for agreeing to represent Siemens and going, going out and sharing what this amazing company does just that simple fact of saying thank you first and acknowledging the value of this person going and doing this is is a big step you know it's it's a it's a really important thing it's very easy to forget to do it but right. because the because the strategy was about the conversation it it started as if you know the very first thing you're going to do is be acknowledged and seen and thanked um it's such a small detail but it's such an important one and a really good demonstration in my mind at least of of how you need to build a strategy that flows through everything you do. It wasn't enough to have a document that explained the strategy. The document had to be the strategy. And was there, were there certain, were there certain suggestions or rules in terms of how this content was presented? Could it, could it be in the digital or video form? Did it need to be person to person? Did somebody need to be there live? How did you ensure that conversations didn't just become presentations? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, really good, really good point. Um, our, our kind of the challenge that we ended up setting for ourselves was how do you have conversations at scale? Um, because 
in an ideal world, you have you know, one-on-one conversations through either digital, virtual, or in-person, and, and that's that's the solution, but you can't scale that. So uh, the, a big part of this was how do you take the essence of a conversation and have the that conversation overheard or shared or explored in, in, in a different way be the thing that gets that gets scaled. So we used, you know, we used chatbots and AI as, as, as a way to kind of build conversations that could scale. We built um, sort of the building blocks of a tone of voice that people could kind of use to say, how do you make sure you're doing this in a conversational way? Our design system was flexible. We, we made films and 360 videos that changed people's perspectives. It was very... We used a, a really wide range of different techniques to to, to get that to work, um, and you know, so some of them were you know, by requirement, um, not static, I'd say, but like you know, when you're when you're putting together a, a, a job website where people are coming on to see what's available, that there are certain things that you need you need to do, and the flexibility is then um, in the tone of voice that you use in those pages. Right, there's a very rigorous structure that's required here, but we can just dial the language up, just add some warmth and humanity into this that turns it from being a form to be filled out to, to an opportunity that excites somebody. So it, it was it was very, very flexible and dynamic. That there there isn't a single this is right, this is wrong. There's just shades of shades of right that go all the way through from very, you know, one-to-one conversations to what appears to be a, a broadcast thing, but it comes from a conversational place. So the so the listener is has hasn't seen what you've seen or what I've seen. So let's sort of paint a picture for them. Then we t- when we talk about encouraging conversation, what is this? What does this literally mean from an experiential perspective? If I'm an employee, what am I interacting with? What am I encouraged being encouraged to do? And how am I experiencing it in my life, my work life? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a couple of a couple of things I can kind of point to for this. The the, the first is that at the very very heart of this work was an editorial engine. Um, we had a, a content team uh, run by a wonderful guy called Chris Lockwood. Um, he kind of built a little editorial squad around him and then a network of, of kind of designers and writers and creators. And that editorial engine allowed us to identify the key themes attached to the business, talk about those three, those themes through the lens of the things that drove talent decisions, both externally and internally. And then ultimately, all of that content was interviews with employees. So a big part of it was kind of putting the spotlight back on employees and allowing them to share their stories. Um, but instead of telling a story, let's say, for example, that we were in China and we wanted to um, attract young technology talent and young technology talent had said to us that one of the biggest drivers of their choices is strong leadership. The conversation wasn't about strong leadership. It was with a strong leader about what it takes to be a leader. Nice. And through, through the lens of what they did in their lives and how they brought sort of outside perspectives, um, it was storytelling ultimately. So it, it, there's a, it's one thing to say this is the topic that is relevant, but to do it in a way that resonates. And so a, a big part of this was, was demonstrating to the rest of the, of the Siemens employees that your stories are interesting and they're valuable, and we want those to be the stories that represents the company. Um, we did that from C-suite all the way down to interns. Um, so that, that, that's, that's kind of one way that it kind of became manifest, and there was a, a, a way that you could nominate people to have their stories told um, and share that with, with the editorial team who would then get in touch. Um, and yeah, we found some amazing stories doing that. We found some, uh, this guy in India called Rani who had for the last 20 years or something been in his own time training young engineers <laughs> because he felt that that was 
a really important thing to get people upskilled in the area that's, that Siemens needed. And, and, and they found out about this and went, my God, what have you been doing, pal? And he's like, well, you know, it's just, this is the right thing to do. Just in his spare time. And you're like, wow, this guy's story is incredible. Like, nice. what, what, an, what an amazing thing to be able to, to talk about. And that then starts the conversation around what it takes to be a leader, starts the conversation about kind of why engineering is important in a country like India, um, and allows Siemens to tell a, a much larger story about kind of where they're headed and the role that people actually play inside of it. So did you did you have KPIs? Did you have KPIs in place, or at least mechanisms in place, yeah. where this became cyclical, meaning that uh, issue identification, leadership, then you gotta you gotta create content to address that topic, then you've got you've got to circulate it, you've got to monitor reaction to it, and then you've got to then start again. Is is that how you you had that cycle of from an editorial perspective? Uh, more or less yeah and it kind of because we had the internal survey to tell us what employees felt and we had the external survey to tell us what talent felt we had a very clear map of the problems to solve and we, we did that by all the markets and all the different kind of tenure um sorry uh, all, all the markets and all the different types of roles that were were kind of required um, so so how was how how would so the, this content's developed uh, what was the what was the platform for communicating it out to people? Was it the was it the with the client's internal systems? Did you create apps? Did you create uh, uh, little emojis? Did you, I mean how did you get people to engage with it? Because God knows the shit meetings and email. How did you get them? <laughs> what environment? Did yeah, you? yeah. So we did it in a bunch of different ways. Um, one of so the, the the main destination was it was a medium page called um, Future Makers, which I think is now being uh, renamed to People at Siemens. Um, so it's still, as far as I'm aware, it's it's, it's still there. Um, and that that was the reason that we chose that was really easy. It was accessible. It was simple to kind of get going. And then all of the stories that were were housed there were then chopped up into lots of different pieces that could go into Instagram and Facebook and all sorts of other places. Um, we also then had um, when we launched this thing, we we had a big global rollout internally and one of the little insights that we had um looking at well, how do we how do we start this thing how do we get people to, to kind of notice and, and the very first thing that we realized is that an email from a manager saying please watch this video this is now this is now what we want you to believe about our employer brand it probably wasn't going to be the right thing to do um and probably going to be ignored as, as an, another corporate email and we heard that that phrase a lot oh, not another corporate email so we, when we went over and, and had a look at the, the offices and we, we spent a good bit of time walking through, we, we realized that um, people just kind of have their heads down a little bit. You know, the, the offices are amazing and they're actually they're, they're kind of quite advanced in the sense that it's, it's not about um, you know, static kind of working. It's very free-flowing. There's, there's lots of different uh, remote desks and, and certainly they were a lot further ahead of many companies doing that. But people were still kind of, the, the view of Siemens for them was the view of their department, the view of their role. And so we imagined that as, as like a little, you know, a, the rectangle of a, of, a, of a computer screen. And so we thought, what, what better way to show people the larger world of Siemens than through the eyes of their employees? And so we, we, we picked a couple of amazing stories, including uh, Rani in India, and we went and shot them in 360 so that you could take that rectangle view of your world in Siemens put on a VR headset and see it in 360 and actually sit next to Rani in a rickshaw in India, him talking about what it was that, that he he thought was important and, and how he was kind of contributing to, to, to change. And he was sitting next to you talking about that. So you actually got to see Siemens through the eyes of other people. 
and that we we build installations. We printed three hundred and fifty thousand VR headsets, um, the kind of Google ones. Um, nice. We then had an had an app that we could distribute. Um, that people downloaded to watch that they could watch it at their desks because they they turned up one morning and there was there was a, there was a headset there, so they could they could just use their own mobile phones in that case yeah. right into yeah, the cardboard uh, yeah. VR headsets. Yeah, and the, we built different tiers of that as well. So we had in some some offices we had like a big three sixty dome that you could literally walk into and have the film playing around you. Um, we had the slightly high, higher kind of res stuff and kind of Oculus that people could kind of watch there. But we we made it in a way that. Um, it could be as accessible as, as possible. So there was, there was a version of the film that you could watch just on your phone without the headset and you could use the accelerometer to kind of move around and see all the different different parts. Um, and then you obviously had, had the VR version where you could put, put those goggles on just so we, we made it so that everybody, no matter where they were, could, could kind of see this, including in factories. It wasn't just about white collar as well. It was about how do we get employees working on production lines to be able to see this thing as well. And so... Um Tell us about how, I mean, I, I got to assume that you were starting internally, which is smart. You were sort of building a sense of a spirit, um, a sense of connectiveness between employees. And then, but the ultimate, that's, that's a retention strategy, right? That's, that's a retention program. Uh, and, but also there's, there's a role that you wanted those employees to play as part of the external uh, ret- uh, recruitment program. So take us from retention to recruitment, I know there's commonality between those tactics, and they're they're um, uh, they're they're almost um, uh, preparing the soil internally so that people can advocate for external. So, tell us what the experience was externally for somebody who was a potential recruit. Yeah. So, uh, in order to, do, I just want to paint a, a really simple kind of picture diagram in your mind. So, imagine if you will an infinity loop, um, and in one one half of the, the infinity loop is, is the word employees and the other half is talent. Yeah. Um, and this, this was for us very, very early on was a kind of the strategic framework that hung all of this work together, which is that in order for external talent to think differently about Siemens, your people internally need to be engaged and be able to share this single story. And on the edges of that loop um, exist different departments and different functions. So on the external side of things, you have the employer brand, then you have recruitment marketing, then at the intersection you have onboarding, then you have um, performance reviews and learning and development, and then even an offboarding in the alumni strategy, right? So we, we kind of looked at all the different functions that exist inside of the, the total employee experience and the external time experience mapped around this infinity loop. And this, this diagram, um, I have a version of my desk in front of me for some reason, um, became the, the lens through which we understood the context of all the briefs we were doing. Every single brief we worked on, you could, you could point out and say it sits here in this, in this kind of experience. Nice. And what that meant f- for us was, was it was, yeah, it was, it's really, it's, it's one of those perfect examples of like, it's death, it's deathly simple, but it's incredibly powerful. It's such a, such a, a good organizing visual framework to, to be able to come back to. What was really powerful about it was it meant that you understood what came next. So the employer brand typically operates at the upper end of the, the kind of consideration funnel. It's, it's awareness and relevance. Um, and then when you get to the application stage, you're really talking to recruitment marketing. And at Siemens, those, those groups had been split. Um, and they, they, were, they were finding ways to work together and they had kind of people whose responsibility it was to tie these things together. Um, but we had, um, as part of the program, you know, workshops with recruiters 
where we were talking about the employee brand strategy, how it was to have a conversation with talent, but what, they, what it was they wanted, um, and really changing the way that they understood the task from about filling a role to helping someone find the right role for them. Um, and it was beautiful to kind of see, you know, what, what was in effect a, a theoretical view of how this should work made real speaking to a recruiter who then went out and interviewed talent in a different way than they thought to before that to be able to tell different stories, you know, given the editorial work that we've done as examples and say, Hey, there's this, there's this person here in this market does this. And I can, I can tell you about that because it's been made and I can show you a video in the, in that interview. So right at, right at the, you know, excuse the vaguely, uh, energy centric example, but right at the coalface of that talent experience is this recruiter who has to represent this, this company. And you really want that person to tell that amazing story. So part of that was, was behavioral. How do we get that recruitment marketing force and, and recruiters to kind of be, show the best version of the company and be able to share those stories? And these are not recruiters. These are not recruiters that are employees of Siemens. These are, these are independent external recruiters. Well, the people that we spoke to for the most part were employees and the, the recruitment, the talent acquisition um, force at Siemens was like 2,000 people strong or something. It's ridiculous. It's a huge group of people. Wow. Um, and then there's third parties as well. And, and, and so... And these are, these are more, people, just so the listener understands, these are people that are going out to top universities, you know, going to job fairs that are, that are out there representing the brand and making the pitch. Yeah, and, and at all levels too. So yeah, yes, it, uh, university fairs, yes, careers fairs, but also then looking at executive levels. So these people's job is to find the people who can not just fill the roles that are available at Siemens, but also change the trajectory of where the company is trying trying to go. Um, and it's a very, I mean, it's the most it's the most important role in the whole talent growth thing is making sure that that person, when they have that conversation with talent, can represent the company in in the way that's true. Um, so a, a big part of our strategy was arming those people with the stories to tell or the story to tell and then the examples to use that could um, change the way that that talent thought about Siemens. Um, and obviously then you work from that moment further up the funnel to go, if we're showing ourselves at say Web Summit, which we, which we built an installation for, when people walk past that, what impression do they get of Siemens? And how does that, if they follow that thread, if they pull on that thread and, and talk to someone at that stand, how do they get a deeper understanding of what Siemens was that's different to what they had before they walked past? You talked earlier about this, this insight about the probably the most credible way of changing people's perceptions or at least somebody who's curious or they're a little bit intrigued about the, the brand is that they would try to connect with somebody who already works there. So how did you guys make those connections or enable those connections to happen for those people who wanted to do that? Yeah, so a, a big part of that was making sure that employees had the tools that they needed to tell those stories uh, and allowing it to organically happen. Um, obviously, then there was, there was the, the extra kind of job of making sure that anybody working in talent and recruitment and employer brand um, was going out and, and engaging then. Um, but a, a, the biggest part of it was making sure that, that that was all funneling into the right places. So those conversations tended to happen in, in the more official ways. Um, we certainly had... Uh, designs for how how would we, um, you know, have um, ask me any things of of kind of senior leaders or, or, or ways to get directly to to, to Siemens talent, um, but the bulk of the effort was really just making sure that the stories and the infrastructure was in place for for Siemens people for them to then decide how they wanted to go out and do that for themselves. Um, we also had things like you know, chatbots and kind of um, 
things like that where you could direct people to the right places and make sure that you you can understand what they're looking for and getting to the to getting into those contacts but for the the recruitment process and the talent process there's a there's a pipeline and a funnel to be filled so it's making sure we're getting people into those places our our ambition certainly was that um in time that those conversations could happen much more publicly and externally but it was a really big shift from a company that doesn't talk about themselves publicly very well to to get them to all of a sudden turn around and be you know, social influences and, and kind of engaging in those conversations. Was there ever a sort of an external um, marketing campaign that uh, was either in terms of digital display work or uh, poster campaigns? Or w- was, there, was there that component to the overall marketing program that was in the toolkit for those who needed it? One of the things that became really important um, in the, about the kind of middle of this program was actually starting to build the toolkits for markets to do that for themselves. Um, we they weren't going to have the resources to employ full agency teams of people to go and do that for them. So instead what we gave them was the playbooks and the guides to kind of understand what the strategy was and go and build it for themselves. So there's definitely stuff that went out externally. And um, we had, you know, very early on, in fact, we, we, we'd given a bunch of prototype assets to a, a team in Portugal um, to say, you know, we, you, you had a need, so we built this for you. Let us know how it goes. And they came back and <laughs> told us they had like a 400% increase in applications based on, based on that work. So um, we didn't get super involved in the um, amplification of the work in marketing programs simply because we just, we just weren't there in, there in the process. Um, and it certainly did happen, but it happened more independently, which in lots of ways for me is, is even better because it means that the strategy was understood and adopted um, and then used without us knowing. And there, there were plenty of examples where we, we were hearing how it was getting used by teams that we didn't know about. And, and, and as I said, in lots of ways, that made me feel even better about it because it meant that it was easy for those teams to, to use it and, and, and to make it work for themselves. So I understand one of the things that you shared before was the idea that RGA devi- kind of designed this modular system mm-hmm. that had you know 300 templates in it that... Is that the sort of is that the toolkit that we're talking about here? The ability for in market people to be able to kind of select what they need in the moment. Yeah, that, that's certainly a, a, a big part of it. And you can imagine a company that size, um, with all the different things they do, has an enormous amount of flexibility. Or would need an enormous amount of flexibility in in the tools to communicate. Um, so not only was the the thematic flex that they could talk about their specific part of the business, but they then have a bunch of visual templates that could. Um, be easily replicated to do each of those jobs. Um, so the, the modular system was really, really important because we couldn't possibly predict all the places that it would need to go. So it would need to be flexible enough to adapt and grow in time. Um, and th- that's why there were so, so many templates that kind of went into it. So just a couple of final things before we, we wrap up. You you shared, and I'll put it on the, on the episode page with your permission, you, you shared um, a link to all of this content that was produced. And it's a phenomenal amount of content. Yeah, and, I mean, really incredible. And it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal story. Um, share, share with those who are faced with this, because I think, you know, these internal programs, the first thing that gets asked is, well, at a senior C-suite level is, well, what are we tracking? Uh, what do we expect to be the return on that investment and mm-hmm. is this going to work? And the most important thing that everybody hates to hear is show me an example of this working for somebody else. Uh, yeah. So, so a yeah. couple of questions. Number one, what did you track and, and what can you share with, with people out there who 
need to understand what the KPIs were and also what the results were. Yeah. So what, one of the things that, as I said, we had these two big data sets. Um, uh, the challenge with those data sets is how infrequently they get measured. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Our, our measurement framework that we built, built around this um, hugely ambitious given how many different you know, parts of this they, they kind of needed to be and how difficult it is sometimes to isolate the impact of a piece of work in the context of all the things that are happening. You know? So if, terrible example, but I'm going to use it anyway, if Siemens has to make some staffing changes, then that's going to dominate the headlines for the company in whatever market that is. And no amount of employer branding activity is going to um, completely change the narrative in, in kind of market. So being able to isolate the effect of the work you're doing is, is very challenging. Um, but what our ambition was overall was that we would see in improvements in the engagement internally and improvements in the perception and preference of Siemens as an employer externally in talent. But to do that, we need to build proxies. So we need to, to build a, a framework that allowed us to look at well, what would be an early signal that those things were changing. Um, and the simplest version of that is, is you know, asking asking people directly. So we, we had we had an external survey that we ran, uh, a really simple Qualtrics survey that looked at how people perceive Siemens before and after engaging with content um, from, from the, the kind of editorial engine. Um, and we saw overall kind of about a 30% increase in um, consideration when people were engaged in it. We saw a, um, about a 12.5% increase in positive perception um, and a three times improvement in association with keywords like innovation um, and creative uh, after viewing that content as well. And what, what that ultimately then translated to internally was when we ran the, the surveys post um, the, the launches of the, the, the 360 content, um, we saw between 97 and 99% increases in engagement and pride. Now, while we can't draw a direct line then to the engagement survey because it was going to be another two years, what we could show is the early indications were when people were engaged with this content and, and engaged with an experience as a part of this program, those perception changes were... were, were were very real. You then start to link the kind of daisy chain of those things to what happened in social engagement. So when we, we posted one of these bits of content out, out, out in the world, how are people engaging with it? And if we knew that the general, the general view was when people had seen this stuff, they'd changed the perception of Siemens and we saw this many people had seen it and this was the engagement rate on this content, we could make some assumptions about how effective different types of stories were at, at making those changes. Um, what, what I can't share is, is kind of where it all went in, in the end, but I can I can kind of just give you the the bits of that story that that kind of demonstrated what what, what changed. And we saw you know we got anecdotal stuff from markets saying that have you know four times increases in in, in applications. We saw um, time spent on, on the websites improving. We had mass downloads for for, for the app in in, uh, in in internally. And one of the one of the kind of more intangible things for, for me that I'm, I'm really happy to see and, and I'm really proud, hope, hoping that I had, <laughs> had some, some sort of impact on this is that very recently um, the new CEO of Siemens announced that um, all their employees could work from home forever if, if, if they wanted to. And the second part of that statement said, we trust our employees to get their work done however, however they wanted. And that 
that demonstration and that, that kind of signal to their employees that you know, we trust you has to come from a change in that culture from, from where it was previously. And the, the, the second thing I think is, is really amazing, I, I point directly here to, here to Chris Knorn, um, who's now head of employee experience of, of one of Siemens kind of little sub-businesses. The role of employee experience or head of employee experience didn't really, well, it didn't exist when we started this, this project. And a big part of the change in, in this brief was moving from employer brand to employee experience and getting different people who had never really sat around a table before to actually have a conversation about how do we design this total employee experience to change how people feel about working here. And so now to see that role, that function actually popping up at Siemens as something that that is a, is a, is a new thing to organize for me is, a, is an enormous demonstration of a change in the way that they're thinking about that, which is, which is wonderful. Lachlan Williams, former head of strategy at RGA London. And uh, tell us what you're doing right now before we wrap up here. Yeah, so I, I, um, I've taken a bit of time. And actually what I've been doing for the last couple of months is um, unashamedly doing work that I really, really wanted to do. And a lot of it's volunteering. So I, uh, I've been helping a, a, an academy called the Brixton Finishing School, um, which is a, an ad course for underrepresented talent. I've been helping uh, the founder, Ali, um, with curriculum strategy. I've been doing some teaching and some mentoring for that. Um, I've joined a little cohort called uh, Good Brains for Good Brands, which is started by a little recruitment company called Unknown. And it's volunteering kind of creative talent to charities that are in, in crisis right now. Um, I've been an advisor for a bunch of companies, um, fashion, a fashion company in Berlin, as, as well as a, a femtech in, in, in the UK. Um, and then, you know, being open to having conversations and mentoring kind of whoever I can, whoever I can speak to. Um, I've also had a bit of a play with some, some old mates of mine with a little uh, brand experience accelerator, which has been a lot of fun to kind of really just get back to a, a high performing team of people that I really know and trust to, to make a big impact on some small businesses that couldn't necessarily afford to do that with, with, with large agencies. So I've, I've kind of decided in the, the time that I, that I was sort of spending after RGA to kind of put good out into the world and see, see if I can kind of help people that um, wouldn't necessarily be able to get this, this sort of help under normal circumstances and uh, speaking to lots of people and figuring out what I want to do is my, my next big thing next, but um, giving myself a, a bit, bit of space to, to really explore um, how I start to apply all the things that I've learned over the, the past six and a half years at RGA to, to, uh, to different businesses. Nice, man. Really good. And, um, and you're doing it all in Cambridge, which certainly, yeah. <laughs> certainly is Doing nice it all in Cambridge in between, you know, in between wrangling a four-year-old and an eight-month-old child. So, uh, oh, man. Oh, mu- man. Multitasking oh, man. is my middle name right now. Yeah. Thanks, Lachlan. Thanks for being here. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Well, thank you so much for having me, pal. Take care. Cheers. Bye.